Okay, let's open our Bibles down to Romans chapter 4, and tonight we'll take a look at verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. In answer to the question, how does man receive eternal life, there are really only three general answers that are typically given. At least there's three answers that are given by those who believe that there's a God and that there's an afterlife and that we have to be rightly related to him. We're talking about those kinds of people, not the atheist, of course. The three answers that are typically given are these. The first is that God saves a man according to his works. Thus, if in the end one's good works outweigh his bad works, then he earns access to heaven. And that is a lot of folks that believe that. The second answer that is given is that man saves, God saves man according to his faith coupled with good works. He must believe in Jesus Christ, or depending on the faith, Buddha or Allah, uh, but also in addition to that faith there must be good works present in order to earn eternal life. And that is the view, as we spoke last week, of a, a great majority of people who would consider themselves to be Christians, um, but may or may not be, depending on if they truly are adding faith to works, we'll see that that's not going to count for faith. We won't see it this week or next, but the week after that. And the third view is that God saves man by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So either works, faith plus works, or by grace through faith apart from works. The scriptures make it quite clear that the correct answer is number three. God saves man by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I want to stress that one more time. The scriptures make that clear. I, I don't really care what church tradition is. I, I take a look at it because we can learn some things from that. really could care less what the Pope said about it, frankly, if what the Pope says is contrary to what the scriptures say. And, I, and again, like last week, I know quite a few of you have a Catholic background, but it's time to get right straight to the heart of the matter. What matters is what the Word of God says. And the Word of God says, unequivocally, that God saves a man by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And all three of those aspects are important. You have to, our faith has to be directed in the proper place, to the proper person, or it doesn't count. We couldn't say that God saves a man by grace alone, through faith alone, and whoever you want to have, I mean, by grace, through faith, and whoever you want the faith to be in. If you place your faith in Buddha, you're in big trouble. So we need to be specific about this because this is a matter of life and death. And, and not just temporary life and death. Permanent, eternal life and death. And this is the truth that Paul is continuing to expound as chapter 4 opens. In chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, 20, we discuss the fact that man is under the condemnation of sin. All men, not just some. The immoral person is sinful and needs a Savior. The moral person was demonstrated to be sinful and needed a Savior. And even the Jew, in spite of the advantages that they had, they had the oracles of God, but they were still demonstrated to be sinful and in need of a Savior. Finally, Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So chapter 1, verse 18 through 321, assert the universal need for justification. In chapter 321, then we came, we started on a new section of Paul's letter. That's going to run through chapter 5, verse 21. So 321 through 521 is a new section. And 118 through 320, a minute ago I said 321, it should be 320. And 118 through 320, 
we see the universal need for salvation. Now in 321 through 521, we'll see that justification is the imputation of God's righteousness that is acquired by all who exercise faith in Christ. So in the first section, we saw the need of justification. Now we're going to see what justification is and how one acquires it. You see what we've gone into a new section now. Actually, we went into it two weeks ago. Anyone who believes in Jesus Christ acquires a right standing before God. We looked at that over the last two weeks in verses 21 through 31 of chapter 3. Justification is more than the forgiveness of sins. That is a subtraction. To subtract the penalty of that away from us is, is a wonderful truth. But justification is more than that. It also includes the imputation of God's righteousness, or a righteousness that is consistent with God's righteousness, to the believer at the moment of faith, which makes the believer acceptable in God's sight. If this was a systematic theology class, I'd tell you to star that. I'd tell you to take it, take it down word for word and star it, because I definitely would ask it on an exam. Justification is more than, more than just simple subtraction of our sins. Justification is a lot more than that. That's part of it. But justification also includes the addition of righteousness, which makes us acceptable before God. Simply the removal of our sins doesn't make us acceptable. It's the removal of the sins plus the addition of, of righteousness to the believer. Now, Paul introduces an illustration in chapter 4 of a man who was justified by faith. And that illustration is going to be Abraham. This is the subject. Abraham is the subject. And Abraham's justification and how he got it is the subject of chapter 4. So chapter 4 is going to serve at least four purposes. Chapter 4, first, serves to confirm by illustration what was said in 321 through 27, namely that there is no cause for boasting before God. Remember we said if, if we're all sinners, if we're all equally lost... And we all come to God in the same way with the empty hands of faith. Nobody brings any, there's no degree of emptiness. Everybody's bringing the same thing. If that's the case, Paul says, there's no cause for boasting. So in this chapter, we'll see by illustration of no less than Father Abraham himself, that there is no cause of boasting before God. Key words, before God. If anyone could boast we would think it would be Father Abraham, arguably the most revered human figure in the Old Testament. I mean, people might argue Moses, people might argue David, but the Jew would put Abraham at the top of the list. No questions asked. Everybody else can scurry for a seat underneath him. The second thing that this chapter does, it also serves to demonstrate without a doubt that Abraham was justified before God by faith not by works, and not by faith plus works. This is an incredibly important chapter. This is an incredibly important truth for you to understand thoroughly to have a good working rapport with your Jewish friends, to be able to speak their language, to be able to introduce a person to them that is revered. And if you can get them to understand that Father Abraham wasn't saved because he was circumcised. 
that Father Abraham wasn't saved because he was, generally speaking, a real good guy. Exercised a lot of faith. Passed a test that I, none of us probably would have been able to pass with the sacrifice of Isaac or being told to sacrifice Isaac in, in Genesis 22. But Abraham was not saved that way. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. A critical issue for talking to your Jewish friends about what it takes to get eternal life. The third thing that this chapter does is it serves to confirm the fact that justification is by faith in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Some people teach that in the Old Testament you had to keep the law for salvation. But then in the New Testament you needed to exercise faith. This chapter will teach us, by going back to the Old Testament for our illustration, that salvation was the same, Old Testament and New Testament. In chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says that it was witnessed by the law and the prophets, speaking about, talking about justification by faith. Now in chapter 4, he shows that it was witnessed by Abraham, even before the time of the law. So those who would say that salvation was by keeping the law in the Old Testament cut out a whole bunch of people that didn't have the law including Father Abraham. What Paul proposes then is not something entirely new. I can just hear Paul's critics talk about this new theology that he's pulling up, this Jesus, this Messiah. No, faith. No, it's old stuff. It goes all the way back to the Torah, all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis. And what I found is, and I, and I don't mean to be pejorative, I don't mean to be mean, I mean I'm, I'm saying this in, with all the love of Christ. Part of the problem with our Jewish friends is that they haven't read their own scriptures. I would invite them to read the Torah. Read it right straight from Hebrew. I mean, it's right there. If you don't like Hebrew, if they don't know Hebrew, read it in English. It's there. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. And there was no works added to it. And then Paul picks up on that. Actually, the idea of salvation by grace through faith precedes Abraham. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. There's nobody that's ever been saved by works, including Adam and Eve. It just was made clear with Father Abraham. And the fourth thing that this chapter does is it serves to testify to the Jews that God justifies by faith and not certain privileges, such as the law or rituals like circumcision. Abraham was justified... Well, I'll ask you, was he justified before or after he was circumcised? Before, long before he was circumcised, he was justified. So just, justification is not by circumcision. Justification, if we use Father Abraham as an example, and this is a stroke of genius on the, on the part of the Apostle Paul, influenced, of course, by the ultimate genius with a capital G, and that's the Holy Spirit, to take Abraham as the illustration. It settles all discussion. Nobody's going to argue with the illustration of Father Abraham. So now that you have the four purposes of this text, let's get into the first two verses themselves. Actually, what I'd like to do is read, read the first three, and then we'll pick up verse three as part of our study next time. But Paul says, What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And I love that. I love what Paul's doing. It's exactly what you should do, too. Let's go back to what the scriptures say. The scriptures say that Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
That word believe, whether it's Greek or Hebrew, means to place one's trust in someone or something. Abraham trusted God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. This is the second of seven times in Romans that Paul uses this phrase, what shall we say then? Paul is here posing a rhetorical question to introduce the next stage of his argument. So we know that we've entered a, a new part of Paul's uh, purpose in the book of Romans. It, it reads like this, What shall we say then? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. This phrase, according to the flesh, if you look at it closely, you, you might say, well, is this connected to our forefather, Abraham? So is it our forefather according to the flesh? Or is this something that Abraham has found according to the flesh? Even in English, that might be a little bit ambiguous, but it's not really. He hasn't found anything according to the flesh. He is our forefather according to the flesh. This phrase has led some people to believe that Paul is speaking primarily to his Jewish audience here. Remember, the church at Rome was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. But the emphasis on the, in this chapter is not so much on the fact that Jews are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. The emphasis is on all men are saved in the same way that Abraham was saved. So I don't take this so much that it's speaking just strictly to the Jewish people in the audience. This is speaking to all the people in the audience. There is a sense in which Abraham is the, the forefather of all those. He is the forefather of all of us who believe. There's also a sense in which Abraham is the forefather of more than just the Jew physically. Do you remember? Abraham had, had offspring through non, his non-Jewish um, son, and they became great nations in and of themselves. So there may be a little bit of stress on the Jew, particularly in the first part here. But both Jew and Gentile, if you'd been around the block at all, knew who Father Abraham was back in, in, this, uh, in the first century. Paul puts forth then the example of Abraham, a revered figure to both Jew and many Gentiles, as the one who was justified by faith and not by works. The reason I keep stressing this is if you're really out there, if you're really out there talking to people, and you really get through all the, the uh, barrages that they put forth before you, and you, you really get down to what is it that makes you believe that when you die, you're going to get to go to heaven instead of hell? What is it? You're going to find the answer, well, I'm just trying to be good enough. You know, generally speaking, I'm a pretty good person. You're going to find that so much it's going to nauseate you. That's why this is so important. That's why I get passionate about this. We've got to cut through that nonsense. You know who I'd almost rather talk to? I'd rather talk to someone who says, hey, there is no way I'm going to heaven. If you knew what I had done, you would know that there's no way I'm getting in. I, I mean, there's no way God's going to let me up there. At least, now we can talk. At least we've got past that first part, and you already know that you need a Savior. But the, the most difficult of the two categories that Paul had to deal with, I believe with all my heart, was not the immoral man. It's the moral person and the Jew that he had trouble with because they thought they were good enough, maybe not good enough to get all the way to the best part of heaven, but certainly to sneak in because I'm not quite as bad as that guy back there. And, and everything seems to be relative with, with human beings. And if I, could, if I just haven't been as bad as Adolf Hitler, well, if hell's for Adolf Hitler, then maybe purgatory's for me. Not to mention that there's no purgatory mentioned in the Bible. You're going to one place or another. You see the problem? 
This is big stuff. And so Paul is going to cut, cut this whole idea of the fact that we can work our way to heaven out. And listen, there are believers out there. Or there are, let me, my big, I, must, I misspoke. There are people who would consider themselves Christians out in the world that if you talk to them carefully, I've got some that I know extremely well, and you say, why are you going to heaven? Well, I'm just trying to be good enough. I've taught Sunday school for years and years, decades. Doesn't that count for something? No, it doesn't. What counts is faith. Now, the faith itself doesn't save you. We discussed that briefly last week. I want to say it again. God saves you. God saves you based upon your faith or through faith. But, and it is totally a work of God. You don't, um, you don't bring anything to the table. What Paul's saying in verse 1, he's, he's, in a way he's asking a, a rhetorical question, and he's, he's putting forth Father Abraham, and he's saying, what can we discover about justification from looking at the life of Father Abraham? Well, the answer is a lot. We can discover a lot. And that's why Paul takes an entire chapter and devotes it to this man. Now, verse 2 is where we'll spend most of our time that we have left tonight. Verse 2 and then Another passage that is related to this. Paul says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In the culture in which Paul ministered, which was some 2,000 years after Abraham's time, and to put that in perspective, it's been almost 2,000 years since Paul's time. So we're talking about somebody that lived a long time ago. In the culture in which Paul ministered, there was a Jewish view of Abraham that was more legendary than it was fact. And over a period of time, especially 2,000 years, legends can grow. Abraham's life was held up by the Jew as a model of true piety, but it had been distorted by Paul's time so that his works and goodness were the basis of his right standing before God. In my experience, this is the view that many Jews continue to hold today. If you speak to many of your Jewish friends, and I don't, I don't have exhaustive experience here, so I can't say all, certainly wouldn't say all, but if you speak to many Jewish folks, you, you might be confounded by what it is they really believe. Because you might start the discussion by trying to convince them that Jesus of Nazareth truly was the Messiah that they had been seeking. And they had been waiting to place their faith in him specifically. But in the meantime, they had followed the pattern of Father Abraham and, and trusted Yahweh for eternal life. Or Adonai, if they didn't want to say Yahweh. It's not that way. I would dare say you're going to hardly ever, if you ever in your life will run into a Jewish person that says, I trust Yahweh for my eternal life. I understand that I am a sinner. I understand that I need a Savior. I understand that there's nothing that I could do to gain favor with God. I know my Jewishness doesn't gain me any favor with God at all. I know the fact that we have the oracles of God doesn't gain me favor. I understand that circumcision did not gain me favor with God. I trust Yahweh and Him alone. It's just that I'm not convinced that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, or Jesus 
of Nazareth was really the Christ or the Messiah. You'll never hear that. What they will tell you is, the reason I'm going to heaven is because I'm Jewish, which, by the way, for a group of people who have been the recipient of some of the most intense racism in the history of mankind, the most intense persecution based upon their race in the history of mankind, that's a very racist idea. I mean, we just need to call it what it is. Sometimes I think if we quit coddling and just get right to the point in love, we might make a better inroads. No, you're not going to heaven because you were Jewish. Show me where it says that anywhere in here. Yes, you're God's chosen people. Yes, you had tremendous advantages. But what are you doing with that advantage? So they're not saying, I'm just not convinced Jesus was the one that we're looking for. What they will then tell you is, if you press them, and, and you can press people on Father Abraham, and I've done this before, well, how is Father Abraham rightly related to God? And you know what they'll tell you? Because of his works. Because of his goodness. Because of his piety. So therefore, the way I'm going to be rightly related to God is, first, because of my Jewishness, and then second, because of my own personal piety. My own personal goodness. And Paul is debunking that right here. Now listen, if you said, well, Paul debunks that, I don't know that you have to do that. If you're talking to a Jewish person, you can go right straight back to the Hebrew Scriptures. And by the way, it's better when you're talking to a, a Jewish friend. And I know some of you are Jewish here, too. I, I know that you're Jewish and you trusted Jesus Christ. And perhaps you could even tell us more about this at some, at some other time. But if you're talking with a Jewish friend, call it the Hebrew Scriptures. Don't call it the Old Testament, because then you're going to get an argument about the New Testament. You can go right straight back to the Hebrew Scriptures in the Torah, in the first book of Moses and the 15th chapter, because the chapter divisions were made in, in large part by Jewish people anyway, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament delineation of, the, of that. Take them right back to Genesis 15:6 and show them that it doesn't say that he did it because he was good. It doesn't say he was saved because he was Jewish. It says he was saved because he exercised faith. But that's not what they thought in Paul's time. They don't think that today either. I want you to consider, and consider carefully, listen carefully, to the comments made by some writers who wrote within a couple of hundred years of the time that Paul lived. These, these attitudes were uh, very prevalent in Paul's day. One wrote, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord. By the way, these were rabbis that wrote this. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Another wrote, and we find that Abraham, our father, had performed the whole law before it was given. Yeah, isn't that kind of humorous? I mean, that's how they get around it. By the way, they, they know that argument, too. They've heard that. They, they heard it way before Paul's day, that how could Abraham be saved by keeping the law if the law wasn't in existence? So you see what they say? He kept it even though it wasn't in existence. He just naturally kept the whole law. He says, for it was written, and then they quote Genesis 26, 5. It's, it's a misunderstanding of that passage, but that's straight from the Mishnah. Uh, another writer said, No one has been found like him in glory. But my favorite is this one. And it comes from the prayer of Manasseh, 8th verse, which is a 2nd century B.C. document. It says this, listen carefully, Therefore, thou, O Lord God of the righteous, has not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against thee. But thou hast appointed repentance for me 
who am a sinner. Do you see what this text is saying? This prayer of Manasseh. You don't, Lord, you haven't appointed repentance for people that don't need it. And the examples of people that don't need repentance because they never sinned were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I've sinned, so I know I need repentance. I think it's fair to say that there was an unrealistic and unbiblical view of Abraham in Paul's day. And this is what Paul is dealing with as he writes this chapter. So he, he picks Abraham carefully. He goes right after the person that they think was sinless. A careful and objective reading of the Hebrew Scriptures would clarify the issue, I think, without much problem. All you have to do is read it, and you'll see that Abraham was not perfect. Uh, on two different occasions, he tried to pass his wife off as his sister. I talked to a Jewish person about that once, and she wanted to argue with me and say, well, it was his sister. Yeah, but it was also his wife. So you're saying a half-lie is not really a lie, and you took a chance on interrupting the line of the seed of the promise with pagans. And see, that's, the, that's the, ex the extent that you have to go to to say Abraham was perfect. How they, how they come across that Isaac and Jacob were perfect and not sinless, that's just, pull your hair out, baffling. Because certainly the, those two are um, just as sinful as the rest of us. But the fact that Abraham, well, the fact was really, Abraham, he wasn't sinless and he wasn't perfect, but he was on the whole a righteous man. On the whole, he was a righteous man. He was a good man, and he had a good reputation before men. In fact, there's going to be a sense in which Abraham, listen carefully, there's a, there's a sense in which Abraham was justified by his works before men. And he would have had a cause to boast before men but not before God. I hope I didn't just throw you a curve. I've been saying the whole time, justification is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. But there was a sense in which Abraham was justified by his works. But Paul is going to make it clear that that justification was before men and not before God. Look again now at verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. The way that this sentence is phrased could also be understood. Let's assume, let's just assume for the sake of my argumentation that Abraham was justified by works. Then he would have something to boast about. But there are also New Testament scholars that understand the Greek construction here to be saying for since Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about before men, but not before God. If you get those two phrases, you, you got this section. He has something to brag about before men. He was an upright man. He was a righteous man. He was a good man. He was a moral man. He was a great example for others to follow. When you looked at Father Abraham, you saw the, re the reflection in, in a person. We call it Christ-like behavior. It, and when a believer truly exercises his or her ambassadorship, we say we see Christ in that person. When you looked at Father Abraham, you saw Yahweh in that person. He was justified by his works before men, but not before God. This has always been a very tickly subject. And let's get right straight to the heart of it, and I want you to hold your place here 
and turn to James chapter 2. Actually, keep keep uh, find James chapter two verse twenty one. But it, but in verse nineteen of the book of James, James gives his outline for the book. He says, "This you know, my beloved brethren. But, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger." We've done a study on the book of James. It's I believe available on MP three. And if you'd like to get the, all the details behind this, feel free to pick up whatever you need. But James is giving the outline for the rest of the book in that passage. So in, in the rest of the book, he talks about what it means to be quick to hear, what it means to be slow to, what it means to, to, to be slow to speaking, and what it means to be slow to anger. That's the outline for the rest of the book. But in, in chapter 1, verse 21 through chapter 2, verse 26, which takes in the whole chapter, James is telling us what it means to be quick to hear. And amongst other things, he says in verse 22, Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. James is teaching in chapter 2 that faith without works cannot save a person in the sense of taking them from a status of rescuing them from a position of immaturity to a position of maturity. The Greek word for salvation or the Greek verb for to save simply means to rescue someone. It means, it means to take someone from a position of danger into a position of safety. David uses it in the Old Testament since that way a lot. Oh, Lord, rescue me. Rescue me from my enemies. Save, and the text will be translated, save me. Save me from my enemies. Save me from the lion. Save me from the bear. He's not talking about eternal life there. He's talking about a physical deliverance. In James, James is not talking about the receiving of eternal life. James is writing to people who are already believers. They've already received eternal life. What James, the type of salvation that James is speaking of is rescuing or delivering people from a status of immaturity in their Christian life to a place of maturity in their Christian life. And if we get that down, the rest of the interpretation of the book is, is so much easier. He's talking to people who are already saved, encouraging them to live consistently with the salvation, with the eternal life that they already enjoy. So when James talk, talks about being saved, look at, I mean, for example, in verse 21 of chapter 1, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. He's not talking about the receiving, the receiving of eternal life there. He's talking about rescuing you, rescuing you from a position of immaturity and placing you into a position of maturity. Otherwise, James not only contradicts Paul in Romans, but contradicts the entire Gospel of John in terms of adding a bunch of qualifications to eternal life, uh, receiving eternal life that aren't there. But James is telling us in this first section what it means to be quick to hear. Don't tell me that you have already been rescued from a position of immaturity to a position of maturity just because you know the word. I'll say it again. Don't tell me, James says, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, that you've been rescued from a position of immaturity to a position of maturity just because you know the Word. He says, do something with it. Then you can say that you've been rescued from a position of immaturity to a position of maturity. So don't delude yourself. James says, if you think that, you're fooling yourself. Now, interestingly, you're probably not fooling very many other people. 
They may go along with you. They may laugh with you and joke with you, but you're really not fooling them either. You're not fooling yourself, and you're not fooling them. For if anyone is a hearer and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he's looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. It's not, not very helpful. But then we get into chapter 2. Again, all that is, is available to you. We get into chapter 2 and begin down in verse 21. Listen to these verses between 21 through 24, and you're going to see what made Martin Luther so mad. Martin Luther spent a lot of time studying Romans, a lot of time. And thank God that he did, because God used Martin Luther in a great way. Martin Luther also was not a perfect man. Martin Luther, in many ways, was not a real likable guy. But God uses specific men for specific tasks, and this guy was one that got it done. He wasn't, he wasn't afraid of the Pope. He wasn't afraid of what could be done to him. And God needed that kind of man to get it done. But he spent a lot of time in Romans and analyzing it. He didn't spend as much time in James. So when you look at a casual reading of James, it's going to look like for the world that he's contradicting Paul in Romans. Because Paul's going to say just Abraham was justified by faith. James says Abraham's justified by works. Luther knew Aristotle's law of non-contradiction, knew they couldn't both be true, so he says one of them can't be. I'm not giving up on Paul because he's consistent with the rest of the scriptures. And then he called the epistle of James an epistle of straw and said it ought not to be in the canon of scripture at all because he didn't understand it. Had he spent, I believe, as much time in exegesis and analysis of the book of James, I think he would have had no problem with it whatsoever. Let's look at it, and you'll see, I, I think you'll see too, in, in a casual reading, why there may be a problem. He says in verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And by the way, in the Greek language, that requires a yes answer. No question. <laughs> We could translate it this way. Abraham, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son Isaac on the altar? Yes, he was. Crystal clear. Now you see why Luther got mad. <laughs> Verse 22, you see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected or matured. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. At this point, Luther is probably scratching his head and saying, James is all over the map. Was it by works or was it by faith? He said both in the scope of three or four verses. What's wrong with you, James? Throw it out. Can't you just, if you've studied Luther, you can see him doing that. Probably threw something against the wall when he did it. And then finally in verse 24, he says, You see, and this is a statement, you see that a man is justified by works, and not by faith alone. Clear as crystal clear. That's what it says. So now we need to see what it means. If we are to understand James is in the canon, I do certainly believe that it is. If I also believe that it can't contradict what has already been presented in the Scripture, and by that I'm not talking about Romans, because Romans was written after the book of James, not before. Some people misunderstand that. Some people think that James was responding to Paul in Romans and trying to soften the whole thing up, saying, well, what's your teaching is going to give people a license to sin. Remember, you do need to work. James wrote his epistle first by at least 10 years. So if anybody's responding to somebody, it's Paul responding to James. And I think in a way he, he was, but not necessarily in the way that you might think. First, was not Abraham our father 
similar terminology to what Paul uses, by the way, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? The answer to that is yes. And in order to understand this section of the Word of God, it would be helpful if we just, in the short time that we have left, get a little bit of a chronology of what was going on with Abraham's life. The first time we meet Abraham, or the first time we meet him in any significance, Abraham leaves Ur. Does anybody remember what the book of Hebrews, 11th chapter, says about that event? By faith. Yeah. He left by faith. The next time we really come across Abraham is going to be in Gen- the next most important thing, and, and I'm, this is a rapid summary. Uh, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where some incredible promises are given to Abraham. Incredible promises. One of the promises is that he, you know, he'll have a great offspring. Between Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15, though, something happens to Abraham's faith, and it is waning just a bit. And as his faith wanes, he, is, he receives further revelation, and he is able to trust God for the fulfillment of that promise. And it's at that point, Genesis 15, 6, that, that Moses inserts what I believe I'll teach you next week is a parenthetical statement about Abraham's faith that's quoted here and is quoted in Romans. It's not to Genesis chapter 22 that he offers up Isaac. Now, the, the point I'm trying to make is that if we read carefully the Scriptures, and I'll go over this more next week, if we read carefully the Scriptures, we've got to see that Abraham was justified before God all the way back when he left Ur of the Chaldees. But even if we were confused about that, which I'll clear that up next week because we're going to be in Genesis next week, we at the very least would have to understand that Abraham was justified before God by Genesis 15. The example that James quotes is not till Genesis 22. Abraham's been saved a long time, no matter which of these two dates you would take for his initial justification. So, when he says, wasn't he justified by works when he offered Isaac his son up on the altar, we're talking about something that occurred at the end of his life. That's the first clue that maybe James is talking about another kind of justification. Going back to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 4, maybe James is talking about a justification before men and not before God. Because we know, and we'll make a very strong case, I believe, that Abraham was justified before God all the way back when he left Ur of the Chaldees. But by the time he gets to Genesis chapter 22, and people here, by the way, there was, there was only a small audience there, but by the time that story got around as to what he did, now Abraham's got a reputation before men for being to use our current terminology, Yahweh-like or Christ-like. There can be no question but that the justification of James 2.23 concerns God's declaration of Abraham's right standing before him, initial justification. That's a quotation from Genesis 15.6. But when he gets to verse 24, we see, or you see, that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone, and that's based upon him offering Isaac up on the altar. Now we're talking about a different kind of justification. 
in short, Paul is talking about justification before God. That justification, which is not only the forgiveness of sins, but the addition of, of righteousness. James is telling people, remember, in this portion of the word, he's telling people what it means to be quick to hear. He's telling people that I don't really care this much about how much you say you know. I want to see something from you. I want to see something of your salvation. What greater act of faith could you possibly see than what happened in Genesis chapter 22 when as in, in obedience to God's command, he took his son and offered him up on the altar, his beloved son, the one who was obviously the seed of the promise. What greater public display before men could you possibly have than that? I would argue that's the greatest display of faith in the scriptures is what happened in Genesis 22. And most Old Testament folks would as well. Abraham's justification before men by works fulfilled the possibility inherent in his justification before God years before. That is, God declared Abraham righteous, and he was righteous in his position, all the way back when he leaves Ur of the Chaldees. This was a legal and a binding act. However, it in no way guaranteed that Abraham would do what few men in all of recorded history would have done in that circumstance. When he, when he offered up Isaac, he was living in his experience in a manner that was consistent with his position. Are you getting this? Because this is important stuff. Abraham was saved back here. But by the time he gets to Genesis 22, he is living out publicly for everyone to see the faith that he exercised all the way back here. And that's why this text says that his faith was working with his works, and it became a mature faith. When you're around someone who is mature or maturing in their faith for any length of time, you will be able to sense that. It's also apparent that if you're around someone who's not mature in their faith, you'll be able to sense that too. I'm talking about cutting through what they say. I'm talking about just watching the person, just hanging around with them. You can tell when you're with a Genesis 22 kind of person. It's before men. It's laid out. This kind of, this kind of guy is not a secret agent 007 James Bond believer here. This is one that when, he, when they, he or she walks into the room, they might not have to say a word. But people just know. You can just tell. And their reputation precedes them. It becomes apparent by the way they talk and by the way they act and by the way they love both God and men that they are one who is living out the reality of the faith that they have exercised previously. And we would say that they are justified before men. We can see that. Let me conclude it by saying this. There is an initial justification that you cannot see. Some believers live, act, and speak as if they were unbelievers. That's a sad reality. We all know folks like that. We all 
uh, we all we fear for their salvation sometimes because we can't see it. I mean, there's nothing written on their forehead that says, yes, I have been justified. I'd, I'd love to see, I'd love that to be the way it was, but we can't see that. That's before God. The reality is only God knows whether these folks have really trusted Christ. I think God and the person themselves. Paul is speaking of that in Romans. He's speaking of initial justification, initial faith, providing forgiveness of sins and God's righteousness. That's what he's speaking of in Romans. But other, with other people, it is more obvious. Their lives speak a loud testimony as to their faith. And Abraham was one of those people. That's what James is speaking about. He's speaking about that type of justification in the book of James. Okay? James is talking about being transferred from immaturity to maturity. Paul's talking about just getting saved in the first place. We need to be careful here, and I'll say this and, and I'll close. We need to be careful here. because Just because a person has no visible works does not mean that they are not justified before God. I'm not saying that. It is possible, although in my view not necessarily probable, that a person could go great lengths of time and be saved and not show it. It's not the norm. It's not the way God designed it. But it is possible that that could happen. A person could say no to God right away and say no for the rest of their life. God, there are passages in Scripture about people who have done just that, and they are going to die, they're going to go to heaven, and then they will be, they'll receive an unfaithful servant come in at the judgment seat of Christ. But that's not the norm. That's not the way God wants it, even if it is more common than what we would like to see. But it's also possible that a person could perform many good works and not be saved. So we have to watch this here. Abraham was justified before men because of his pious conduct and his good works. But what you saw was a result of the faith that had already occurred. If you ask Abraham, he's going to say, no, I'm not saved because of that. I'm saved because I trusted Yahweh. You should have seen what I did. Didn't you read the book? For goodness sakes, it's recorded for all history. I tried to give my wife away twice. I mean, I'm ashamed of that. I mean, I'm sure Abraham would say something like that. No, the reason I'm saved is because I have exercised faith. Abraham's testimony, listen carefully, Abraham's testimony is one of faith plus works. Faith for initial justification before God, before God, and faith strengthened by works, and then I think increasing works resulting from strengthened faith, resulting in what James then calls justification before men. So now I hope it makes more sense. And I do think Paul was, was at least alluding back to that passage when he says, let's assume that Abraham was justified by works. He's got something to boast about, but not before God. And the implication being before men, yes. Men can see this, but only God can see this. And this is what Paul is talking about. Well, next week, we need to go back into Genesis and to see why, and I think it'll be really interesting for you, to see why Moses waits until Genesis chapter 15 to describe the faith that actually occurred a long time before. But that's going to take another 40, 45 minutes, so let's, um, let's save that for next week. Heavenly Father, what an awesome, awesome privilege we consider it to be, uh, to be graced by your word we thank you that we have it in a language that's so understandable to us. I thank you that 
that there are no contradictions in the Bible, and we thank you that justification is initial justification is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. I, I do pray that if there's anybody here that doesn't understand that tonight, that they may understand more fully after this and then exercise faith. But also, Father, help us to realize that there's a justification by works before men, which is the outworking of this faith that you've given us. Help us not to sit on our hands and to crawl in the closet and to hide and to be secret agent Christians. Help us to exercise the public faith that Father Abraham did, as was described in the book of James as well. So, Father, to that end, we know we can't do it by ourselves, so I pray that God the Holy Spirit would help us in this matter. Help us to grow into the believer that you want us to be so we might glorify you both now and forevermore. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.